Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open the words of Scripture to us and help us hear you calling us and hear your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Just before I preach, I want to give a reminder to the men that Men's Fraternity starts October 6th at 6.30 in the morning, Tuesday, and encourage you guys to be there the last year, third and final year. Um, many women have benefited from Men's Fraternity. <laughs> and it's a, how to be a better husband, father, man, leader, employee, boss, all of that. But this year is called The Great Adventure. And in addition to talking about those things, we'll be talking quite simply about how to have more fun in life how life can be more fun, how there'll be a lot of practical tools, how are you designed, how did God make you uniquely, how do you discover your gifts and what that means for your life, and how do you just have more adventure in life. So I encourage you guys to be there starting October 6th at 6.30 in the morning. You can do it, man up, I say it every year, be there. <laughs> the first Christmas after I had graduated from college, I remember going home to the Tri-Cities, driving with my then-girlfriend, and I'd wanted to drive because the weather was really bad and driving was not her gift. But she insisted, so I said, okay. And you know this does not end well, right? So it was icy, and I kept telling her to slow down. But she said, don't worry, don't worry, I've got it. And at that point, we came up over a ridge and saw a large truck right in front of us. And I watched in horror as she slammed her foot on the brake. And the car started to spin, and we spun underneath the truck. And I thought, I'm going to die. And then somehow the car spun out from underneath the truck, but then we were facing the oncoming traffic, at which point she said, this is kind of fun. It's like bumper cars. <laughs> and I thought, I'm going to die. <laughs> really mad at this woman. Finally, we landed in a ditch and we were fine, but the car as well as the relationship was totaled. Do you ever feel like your life is sort of spinning out of control in some kind of chaos? Maybe it's financial chaos or career chaos or relational or health chaos. Or maybe it's not chaos you're dealing with right now. Maybe it's almost its opposite. There's an emptiness, a void in your life. Maybe it's a marriage that feels dead. Or, or you long for a good friend, but you don't have one. Or maybe you're a little bored with life. You get up in the morning, go to work, and you think, what for, man? One more deal, ship one more product, who cares? And so there's this kind of void in your life. Or maybe you're just kind of down on yourself, and you feel like, man, I'm just a mistake. And there's this emptiness, and you keep trying to fill it with activities or entertainment or buying things for the temporary thrill of it. Well, whether it is chaos in your life or a void in your life, either way, the first chapter of Genesis has good news for you, that God is the God who both orders the chaos in our lives and fills the void. This year we're going to be doing a lot of different sermon series, as we always do, but we're going to be doing them chronologically through the Bible. And the series we're starting today is called Born to Thrive. That is that God gives us everything we need, not just to survive, but to thrive. But before I talk about that, I need to make a digression. Because whenever a preacher preaches on Genesis chapter 1, there are always some folks who are sitting there going, well, what about evolution? So let me just deal with that for a minute. Now, it needs to be said that evolution is still not 100% proven. And maybe 100 years from now, there'll be some different theory. 
But either way, I don't think it matters. Because I do not think that evolution is incompatible with Scripture. Genesis says that God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So, if God used the process of evolution to create the human body out of the stuff of the earth, just like Genesis says, and then at some point came to a small group of hominids and breathed his spirit into them and they became human, that would still line up with Scripture. It would also line up with archaeology, which shows that anatomically modern humans emerged thousands of years before behaviorally modern humans. That is, we had human bodies before we were acting like humans. But then suddenly, just out of nowhere, we started doing things like language, art, religion, things that make us human. And archaeologi archaeologists call it the great leap forward, but none of them can explain why it happened so suddenly. Well, maybe that was the point at which God breathed his spirit into us and we started acting like humans, most of us. <laughs> and then maybe he said, follow me and you will rise above nature and not die. But then we rejected him and so now we experience death. All of that would line up with scripture. But however God made us, however God made us, it doesn't matter. Here's why. Because Genesis is not concerned with how God made us. That's not the question it's trying to answer. You see, we got to read the Bible for what it's saying and not for what it's not saying. And the Bible is not trying to tell us how God created us. There's no explanation of DNA or photosynthesis or anything like that. Instead, the Bible uses very poetic language, including the use of the word day, which even in our own day can mean day or epic, right? Like in my grandfather's day. Poetic language to say who created us and why. Because even if we know how, we still have to answer those two questions because they're the most important. And my issue with folks who insist that the Bible is incompatible with evolution is not that they're reading it too literally. It's that they're not reading the Bible literally enough. They're trying to make it say what it's not trying to say. Genesis is not trying to be a textbook on how we got here. It's trying to answer the far more important question of who created us and why. So let's read it for what it's saying and not for what it's not saying. And if you want to talk more, email me and we'll chat. Okay, now that we've resolved that 100-year-old controversy, let's move on. <laughs> End digression. So if your mind has been wandering, bring those ponies back into the barn because here's the real sermon. Whether you're feeling that there is chaos in your life or a void, what Genesis says is that God orders that chaos and fills the void so that you can thrive. The passage says, now the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Hebrew words there mean literally chaos and nothingness. Or chaotic nothingness. But what does God do with that chaos and that void? He fills it with life and light and order. That is, God doesn't just create, God creates redemptively. And if God can do that with the universe, well then what can he do with the chaos or the void in your life? Is there darkness in your life? He can fill it with light. Chaos in your world, he can bring order. Do you feel a void, having a lot of what you want, but maybe being bored, restless with it, wondering isn't there something more? God can fill that void with meaning, purpose, joy, more than enough, with plenty left over so that you can thrive. And he does it in a couple of ways. 
first thing God gives us so that we can thrive is close relationship with him. It's interesting that in this passage, God makes everything with his word. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be land, and on and on. But he makes us with his hands. We are the only part of creation that he personally touches. To be in intimate relationship with us, that's our design. And last year we talked a lot about how we can hear God's voice and feel his presence. And I'm not going to repeat all of those sermons here. But when you hear the voice of the one who made the stars talking to you, you thrive. And even if there is all kinds of chaos in your life, you feel an incredible sense of peace when you are close to him. And there are hundreds of you who have experienced that truth and can testify to it. Second thing God gives us so that we can thrive he gives us a meaningful co-mission with him. After he made Adam and Eve, the text said God blessed them and said, fill the earth and subdue it. Now that word subdue in Hebrew does not mean pillage or use. It has the connotation of to steward or to order. That is that just as God filled the void, we are called to be his partners in filling this earth with all the good things that he intends for it. This is the work that God gives us. And this isn't just busy work. It's, it's meaningful, purposeful, joyful work, which I think can be kind of hard for us to understand because a lot of times our experience of work is that it's, well, work. Right? And no matter how much you love your job, we all have bad days and it just can feel hard sometimes. I just read about the Swedish vacuum cleaner company called Electrolux. And when they were first trying to sell their vacuum cleaners in America, they gave the marketing campaign to a guy on their staff who spoke English, but he'd never been here. So he came up with the brilliant, brilliant slogan, which they ran for a while, that said, if it sucks, it must be an Electrolux. <laughs> Do you think he got fired? Like, that's a really bad day at work, right? And that's kind of our experience of work. It's hard sometimes. It's difficult, a lot of bad days. But the work that God gives us to do is bigger, more meaningful than what we often experience in our jobs. One, because it's eternal. But two, because we get to do it with him. You see, God does not give us a mission. He gives us a co-mission. We do it together. Two weeks ago, I showed you a picture of a Newsweek cover that I would just love to see in five years. The new God's country, Seattle's east side. That is, that the east side would be so transformed that it would look as if it were God's country. That it would look as if God were in charge here. Marriages would be happy. Poverty eliminated. Corporate fraud gone. On and on and on. And do you know what Jesus is saying to you right now? To you. Personally. He calls you by name. And he says, that Newsweek cover, let's you and I together make that happen. And here's what, we're, here's what I'm going to do. In your office, in your neighborhood, in your life, I'm going to nudge you to reach out to certain people, to say or do certain things, and together, you and I, with other Christians, we're going to make that Newsweek cover happen. He says that to you personally. Now, to me, that is an amazing adventure. That the God of the universe invites me into that. And it fills the void way more than one more purchase, one more addiction, one more promotion ever can. Which brings me to a third thing that God gives us so that we can thrive. And that is he gives us dignity and worth. 
It's interesting to compare Genesis to other creation stories of the time. There's one that circulated called the Enuma Elish, and it's very different than Genesis. In that, creation is the result of two gods, Marduk and Tiamat, who get in a big fight. And Marduk kills Tiamat and uses her body to form the earth. And then he made human beings as slaves to bring him and all the other gods their food. Only the gods thought that the humans were too loud and noisy, so they wanted to kill them all. Right? So it kind of must have been written by a grumpy, sleep-deprived parent. I don't know what the deal is with that one. Well, that's a little different than Genesis 1, where it says God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. We are not God's slaves. We are his special people made for intimate relationship with him. Do you sometimes feel that you're less than other people because you don't make enough money or you don't look a certain way or because you don't have a certain kind of job? Or worse, do you sometimes think, man, I have messed up so much, I am just a mistake? Well, Genesis says you are not a mistake. God made you for a reason. You know, it's interesting that after God created light, he said, it is good. And after he created the land, he said, it is good. After he creates each thing, he says, it is good. But when he gets to humans, he says, it is very good. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd been God, I might not have gotten to the humans. You know, I might have just stopped with the stars or the galaxies or whatever. You know, humans could be problematic. But God does not stop creation until he gets to you. And everything else in creation, God says it's good. But you, he says, it's very good. My wife wrote a novel recently, and she self-published it, and it's on sale at the University Bookstore in Bellevue. <laughs> and she's doing a book signing event there on Wednesday night. And yes, that was a shameless plug, but it's gonna do wonders for my marriage that I did it. And, <laughs> see, men's fraternity has made me a better husband. <laughs> when she was writing it, she, had, she kept saying, me, say, I'm living vicariously through my heroine, which bugged me because the heroine's husband dies on the first page, so I don't know what that was about. <laughs> and there's a character in her book named James, and one person said to her, I don't know, I didn't like James, he was kind of pompous and bland. I mean, the book's not bland, it's great, but this person thought that James was bland, which I also found disturbing, since of all the men in the book, James is the most like me. And it really bugged Christina, and she said, James isn't bad, he's bland, he's wonderful. Right? And someone said, well, why are you so defensive? We're, we're criticizing James, not your book. Your book is great, James. We just don't like James. And she said, because I created him. He's mine, and I love him. You are God's creation, and he loves you no matter who thinks you're bland. Or no matter what you think about you. No matter if you don't think you have this or that or the right job or whatever, God doesn't think that about you. He does not think that about you. He sees you as a unique, unrepeatable miracle. Nobody else is you. He could have created someone else, but he made you because he wanted you. And that means you have value and you have worth. Now, just as a parenthesis, some of us don't struggle with low self-esteem, but with thinking too highly of ourselves. To use an old expression, we think of ourselves as self-made men or self-made women, and we worship our creator. <laughs> Wake up. 
Genesis reminds us that our worth is not in our accomplishments or what we've done. It's in the fact that we are God's unique creation. And when we experience that, we thrive. Because finally, both the person who feels unworthy and the person who thinks they're all that in a bag of chips, they're suffering from the same insecurity deep down, aren't they? Just trying to prove themselves. But real strength comes from the security of knowing I am not a mistake. I am a child of God, redeemed in Jesus Christ. He made me. He died for me. He loves me. I have worth in a sentence, period. No one can change that. A preacher named Fred Craddock tells a story of eating in a diner in Tennessee. And an older man came over and started up a conversation. And the man said to him, what do you do for a living? And Craddock said, well, I'm a preacher. And the man said, oh, I got a story for you. And Craddock thought, oh, man, no, please, God, I just want to eat, right? But this guy said, my name is Ben Hooper, and when I was born, my mother wasn't married. So all my classmates called me by not such a nice name. And I would always try to get away from them because their taunts cut so deeply. But worse was going downtown on Saturday and feeling every eye just burn a hole in me, all of them staring, thinking, wonder who his father is. Well, when I was about 12, a new preacher came to our church. And one day as I was, I was trying to leave before anyone saw me and just get out of there, I felt this big hand on my shoulder. And I looked up and the preacher was looking right at me and he said, whose boy are you, son? And, I, I, and Ben Hooper said, I just felt that weight come back, you know. No father, here it is again. This way. Even the preacher's putting me down, man. But then the preacher smiled at me. And he said, wait a minute. I know who you are. I see the family resemblance. Why, you are a son of God. And then he slapped me on the back and said, boy, you got a great inheritance. Get out there and claim it. And Ben Hooper said that was the single most important sentence of my whole life. And then with that, he shook Dr. Craddock's hand and moved on to another table to greet some old friends. And it was a few minutes later that Craddock remembered that twice Tennessee had elected an illegitimate son to be governor. And one of them was named Ben Hooper, the man he just met. When Ben Hooper realized that he was a son of the father, he found security, worth, and value, not because of who he was, but because of whose he was. You have value. All right. God gives us relationship with him, a meaningful commission, worth, and finally God gives us abundance and joy. This whole chapter just smacks of abundance, right? It says things like, let the waters fill with teeming creatures. Okay, not just normal creatures, but teeming creatures. That's a lot of life everywhere. And you just get this sense that God is having fun. Pastor John Ortberg in one of his books says, it's important to notice what Genesis does not say. He writes this, it does not say in the beginning it was 9 o'clock so God had to go to work. He filled out a requisition to separate light from darkness. He considered making stars to beautify the night but it sounded hard and besides God thought, it's not my job. On the second day, God made all the dry land flat, plain, and functional, so that, behold, the whole earth looked like Nebraska. <laughs> and God looked at what he had done and said, it'll have to do. <laughs> then God made a carp to swim in the water and a cat to creep on the ground. And he thought about making millions of other species, but he couldn't drum up enthusiasm for any other animals. In fact, he wasn't even that crazy about the cat. So at the end of the week, God was seriously burned out, so he said, thank me, it's Friday, and breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> it does not say that. 
Creation is abundant. It teems with life. And there's just all this joy in this passage. It reminds me of when my, little, my kids were little. And I'd just chase them around the living room and the kitchen. And they would just howl with laughter. And then I'd stop and they'd say, do it again, Dad. Do it again. And I'd do it again until finally I would just collapse. And then they'd say, do it again, Dad. And I'd say, no, I, I'm old and broken. Leave me alone. God is not old and broken. And in Genesis, it's like he's making all these things, and you just hear him say, let's do it again. Right? Make another galaxy. Make another planet. Let's do it again. Because God doesn't just give us what we need to survive. He gives us all we need to thrive with abundance and joy. I know of a businessman in Seattle who built a successful company and made a great living at it, but was feeling a little bored with it all, just kind of a void in life. So he decided to go on an adventure with God. So he said, Lord, how can I use my business to be part of what you're doing? And the Holy Spirit gave him an idea. So he told his employees that he would give them time off and pay their way to go with him on a short-term mission trip to Guatemala. Well, ten men from his company joined him. And they went for a week building houses for people who didn't have anything, getting dirty, tired, cold, but also building some great friendships. Because when you serve that way together, you get pretty close. Well, by the end, they hadn't bathed for a week, and they were pretty dirty, and there were no showers. So this man took a plastic bottle and poked holes in it and, 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 and went down to a nearby stream. They all went down to a stream, and he filled the bottle with water and held it up over his employees' heads as they washed themselves off. Remember, he's their boss. And as they were doing this, one of his employees said, hey, isn't there some place in the Bible where Jesus does something like this? Referring to Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And this businessman just lost it, just started to cry because of the, the sense of community he felt with these guys the, and because he felt Jesus just right there saying, I'm so proud of you. Well done, son. You are following in my footsteps. Well, out of that trip, a lot of lives were changed. Some folks in Guatemala got some houses. One man on this trip whose marriage was falling apart, he came home a different man, more warm, more relational. He started praying, getting closer to Jesus, going to church, put his marriage back together. Another guy came home, got off drugs, because he said he got way more fun out of the mission trip than drugs ever gave him. Now, by our culture standards, this businessman had it pretty good. But by Jesus' standards, he, wasn't, he was just surviving. He wasn't thriving. And God filled the void. And he found close relationship with God, a meaningful commission, his value and his worth, and abundance and joy. And even something as ordinary as taking a shower became a life-changing event filled with camaraderie and adventure. So where is there chaos or a void in your life? Where you may be surviving, but with Jesus, you could be thriving. Will you surrender your time, your wallet, your will, your heart to Jesus? Do what he says to do so that you can begin to thrive. Because you see, God is not only the God of creation, he is the God of re-creation, who came himself in the person of Jesus and conquered even death and rose again on Easter Sunday. And what that means is there is no darkness in your life that is so dark that he can't bring light to it, no void so empty that he can't fill it, no chaos so out of control that he can't order it, no suffering so great that he can't comfort it, no pit so deep that he can't raise you out of it, no mountain so high he can't get you over it, no burden so heavy he can't lift it, and no sorrow so sharp he can't give you joy. And you were born not just to exist, not just to be, not just to survive. God made you to thrive with purpose, intimacy, abundance, and joy, more than enough with plenty left over until you say, do it again, God, do it again. And God will say it is good. 
And you, my daughter, you, my son, you are very good. So Jesus, help us to follow in your footsteps. Do what you say to do so that we can know the abundance you came to give us and find our worth only in you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.